This is Red Pop Pod. Red Pop Pod. Red Pop Pod. Red Pop Pod. A podcast. Red Pop Pod. From Red Hog Publications. Red Pop Pod. Red Pop Pod. This is Red Pub Pod. I'm Richard Eller. You know, there's a lot of experiences in life that people have, but some folks just have, I don't know, more of them and bigger experiences. And luckily, we've got a book that we uh, have published in the uh, not-too-distant past that details how one individual who now lives in the area has enjoyed life and all the many facets between doing things for yourself, but also leading people on some of those extraordinary journeys. Rodney Honeycutt joins us today, and his book is Long Guns and Great Fishing Runs. Did I get that right? You got it exactly right, Richard. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for letting me be here. Now, tell me how you got started with all of these exploits that you uh, detail in the book. And we could talk about this for weeks, but we're going to try to, in the next half hour or so, cover just the basics to pique folks' interest in why the book might be the thing for them to kind of vicariously live through some of your exploits. Richard, the book starts, uh, chapter one, for example, entitled The Beginning, uh, and that involves memories of mine as a very young child, the youngest being having my diaper changed in a field of tall grass uh, <laughs> and taking my first squirrel, uh, excuse me, my first rabbit at age four and first squirrel at six. Uh, my grandparents were very instrumental in introducing me to the outdoors, both fishing and hunting, and chapter one ends uh with me passing that on to my children and now my grandchildren. So uh, then the book goes from there into hunting and fishing expeditions uh, with some very colorful people as well as just some good local friends. Now, how did you make that transition from doing it for yourself to leading people? Well, you know, back when I was in my 30s and maybe even part of my 40s, I had a a bucket list of, of certain species that I wanted to hunt or catch uh, and certain sizes that I wanted to achieve. And once I achieved most of those goals, then it became more fun to introduce other people to the outdoors, both hunting and fishing. I mean, uh, I've taken some very large brown bears, black bears, an 800-pound marlin, uh, the first person from North Carolina at age 15 to earn a check at a bass tournament, in 1968, and all that's water under the dam, but I still have my health, and and I have the desire to share the outdoors with other people, especially young people. Now, is this one of the ways you've decided to do it, is through your book? Actually, the book came about, and by the way, I enjoyed working with you and Robert and Patty and and creating this book. It was a a long process, but at the end, it was well worth it, and I want to thank you folks. Yes, the book came about, uh, I had a little bit of a health scare uh, several years ago. Uh, I had three melanomas simultaneously, uh, and that cannot be a good situation. One's bad enough, but three is triple the the problem. And and you can Google uh, Lake Norman 1970 with Rodney Honeycutt and see why I have these melanomas. Back then, we fished from daylight to dark. We didn't wear hats. We didn't wear sunglasses. We didn't wear shirts. There was no sunscreen. Uh, But anyway, I paid the price for that. But anyway, on the way home from the doctor's appointment, uh, my wife asked me to write down my outdoor hunting and fishing adventures. And that's how I got started. And the rest is history. Really? Yes. 
So she she kind of, uh, well, I, mean, I guess you were thinking about it anyway, but she sort of spurred the idea of just getting it down on paper so you could share it. Well, I really hadn't even thought about it until I realized that I may have some health <laughs> issues that, that could take me away from this world. And, and then I got to thinking about a lot of my, my children don't know a lot of the stories that I've experienced. They didn't know about the 1,000-pound grizzly bear in the tent or the black bear cubs in the tree with me or in the cave with a mountain lion. Uh, there's just a lot of experiences uh, that that I wanted to get on paper. And once I started writing, uh, it uh, it just all came naturally. It just took a couple years to do it. And not only the words, but you've got a lot of pictures in this thing too, right? I think there's close to 600 pictures, and they pretty well tell a story in themselves. Hmm. Now you've you've told us about chapter one. Take us through the rest of the book. What 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 would we expect, if, or what would we see if we open the 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 book? Well, Richard, uh, after chapter one, we, we jump forward to uh, uh, chapter two, which is uh, entitled Big Whitetails and, and Black Bears. And that's doing a lot of whitetail deer hunting in not only North Carolina, but South Texas, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, uh, bear hunting in Saskatchewan and, and uh, also in Alaska. Uh, got some colorful people in that chapter among them being Dale Earnhardt, I fished with him. Excuse me, I fished with him once, but I hunted with him on 18 hunts uh, in South Texas. And uh, then you jump on Chapter 3, which uh, is entitled Bird Hunting. And bird hunting or wing shooting is not my forte, but I've done some of it, and I've had enjoyed it. Uh, been in some very special places. And Chapter 4, on to Africa. That's a, a special experience. Uh, that is my wife and two daughters, and I making three trips to Africa. And also in that chapter, and I won't spoil it, but there is the reason why in the middle of a dark night in Africa at 2 o'clock in the morning that I stopped hunting and I haven't hunted since. So I'll let you read the book to find out why that's the case. But then we're going to chapter 5, which is a cat in a cave. And I was on a mountain lion hunt in British Columbia. And the uh, outfitter that I was hunting with is also the game control agent for that area of the territory and he got a call about four o'clock in the morning that there was a mountain lion had been sighted the evening before at a bus stop in a trailer park and it it had a trap a steel trap and a chain it was dragging and it was wounded uh so long story short i won't spoil that either but i actually ended up going in the cave to dispatch that animal it had to be dispatched anyway and i kept it as my trophy because it was actually larger than what i had anticipated shooting but then we go on to, to chapter six the thoroughfare of wyoming uh, a lot of elk hunting uh one of the things i'm proud of with the book is i've got two introduction letters one from ray scott the late ray scott my dear friend uh he wrote an introduction letter. He was the founder of the Bass Angler Sportsman Society and also the Whitetail Institute. And also an introduction letter from uh, Bob Cobb, the first editor of Bassmaster Magazine and the first producer of Bassmaster TV. Anyway, the thoroughfare is full of elk hunting and also have a local testimony in the beginning of the book from Eddie Edwards, the retired president of Comscope. And he confirms and tells a story about the 1,000-pound grizzly bear in our tent one night, and I won't spoil that either. That was a very interesting and exciting <clears throat> night. Uh, chapter 7, The Last Frontier, that's my trips to Alaska. Uh, I was very fortunate and blessed to, to make 14 of those. Uh, took some magnificent game, but also got to learn the culture of the, the Indians up there and uh, became friends with a lot of people in the villages and 
it was more than just hunting. In fact, I uh, still have a relationship with one of the small schools up there that I try to help from time to time. And, and we go on to uh, the fishing end of it. Uh, chapter 8, 9, 10, uh, basically, and 11 are basically about bass fishing and uh, fishing tournaments uh, as a very young man. Uh, I was, uh, like I said earlier, I was the first person to earn a check in a BASS event in 1968 at age 15. Uh, at age 15, 16, and 17, there were only four tournaments that I could fish uh, because of the geography and because of being in high school. And back then, there were no high school fishing teams. There were no college fishing teams. There were no mentors. I was my own mentor along with a few older gentlemen. But anyway, in the uh, summer of 1970, the plan was that after finishing in the money three of those four tournaments, two top tens, as a matter of fact, uh, the plan was my dad was going to go to Lake Sam Rayburn uh, in September, and I was going to go to college. Well, we went to Sam Rayburn to practice in August, and we caught a ton of fish and pre-fishing. And I came home and told my mom that uh, I wasn't going to go to college. I was going to fish for a living. And, that was not the right thing for me to say at the wrong time. Uh, they owned my car. They owned my boat. Uh, and needless to say, I went to college, and, and Dad went on to Sam Rayburn and finished second to, uh, uh, to Bill Dance. And uh, the following summer, uh, I won the draft lottery. I was number one December the 4th, 1952, earned a first draft priority. So that pretty well put a nail in my bass fishing coffin. I guess you could say I retired retired from professional fishing at age 17. But then we go on to uh, La Casa de los Cinco Amigos. That's chapter 13. Uh, that's an adventure in itself. It could be a book in itself. That's a fishing club that Ray Scott started. There were only five of us in the club. Uh, it was Ray Scott and Forrest Wood and Bob Cobb, Bill Schrader and myself. Uh, we been going to Mexico since the 1970s, actually started his club in 1992, uh, and uh, it was a, quite an experience. It's uh, something I look back on, it's hard to believe that it was happening at the time, but then we go on to 14, which is Canadian smallmouth fishing, that proves us big for itself, it's a very colorful people. Uh, now I'll jump to uh, uh, the saltwater fishing, uh, that actually was chapter 12, but uh, that story, uh, it's, it's multifaceted, there's multiple trips, but one trip in particular, we hooked a 780-pound marlin at 2.20 in the afternoon. It jumped twice and tail wrapped the second time. Just so happened, a boat, that we were 50 miles offshore, a boat dropped off their mate to help us because our captain knew, and he's a friend of mine, Sam Stokes, he knew we had our hands full because the second time the fish jumped, the leader tail wrapped. So we had a 800-pound marlin at the time, tail wrapped by the tail. And long story short, that fish died, and we landed it the next morning at 610. The fight went on for 15 hours and covered 50 miles in reverse all night during three thunderstorms. Anyway, we go on then to close out uh, uh, Chapter 16. is fundraising with all my rowdy friends, which uh, that involved uh, some people like Ray Scott and also... Uh, Willie Nelson and Charlie Daniels and Travis Tritt and um, Joe D. Messina, Kenny Rogers. It's a pretty colorful chapter in itself. And then the Pass It On chapter is about talking about me passing on things to my children and, and grandchildren. And, and lastly, I've got a chapter 18, which closed the book out. 
uh, I wrote in what I thought was going to be memory of my best dog, Doc, but he has surprised us all, and he's still with me. In fact, he's out in the car waiting on me for a roast beef sandwich. Really resilient. I mean, yes. yeah. You talked about your grandparents, but your father was a big influence on you as well, right? Well, Dad, uh, Dad's a Bass Fishing Hall of Famer. Uh, he was not into hunting at all. He was big time into fishing. I think he did some hunting as a very young man. Uh, and yes, I spent a lot of time with him on the water. Uh, probably spent as much or more time with my grandfather, uh, his dad had to work for a living, obviously. And then uh, dad went on to fish the tournament circuit and I went to work after I came back from basic training. How did you match working and leading these expeditions? How did, how did that work? Richard, that's a really good question. Uh, we bought the business, the family business, myself and my two young brothers. Uh, I think it was in 1983 or 1984. And I ended up buying out one of my brothers along the way. And it was a 10-year leverage buyout. Uh, and at the end, of, and, and there was very little hunting and fishing during that 10-year period. Uh, I did some local fishing. I did some local hunting in Burke County, if you will. But towards the end of that buyout, we were getting ready to write the last check at the end of 10 years. And I told my wife, I said, we're going to have some money that we're not used to, used to having at the end of every month because we were writing some pretty significant checks for that business. And I said, I can do one of three things. We can either give ourselves a raise, or we can cut our costs to our customers, or we can hire three people to help me manage this thing. We can hire an engineer, which we did. We can hire a marketing guy, which we did. And we can hire an estimator, which we did. That was the money we had been spending buying the business. And I hired those three people, Ken Duty, may rest in peace, Don Daniels, and Darren Allen. And... Uh, they would help me manage the business. And we grew the business from the time we bought it from 15 people to 200 people. And we added more management people. And as we did uh, in the early 90s, I was able to get away some. And by the mid-90s, I was able to get away a lot. I could be gone for two weeks at a time, and they, that management team would keep things together. So that's when I began all these serious adventures, big adventures. And uh, then finally, uh, uh, in the year, I think, around 2000, uh, I had quite a bit of free time on my hands. And uh, uh, I, once I had achieved my goals, it was my desire to help others achieve theirs. So it, it just grew and grew over the years uh, once, you, once you got control of the business or got it to a manageable position. Well, you know, I told a story earlier that, that uh, I might have fished for a living had the cards been dealt just a little bit different. Uh, and I'll always wonder, I finished in, in the money three out of the four tournaments I fished by the time I was 17 years old, so I had some history there. But I wouldn't trade fishing for a living for the life that I lived because by following the business route, it allowed me to chase other dreams, which far outweighed anything I could have accomplished just bass fishing. Now, how did some of these celebrities uh, find out about you? Is it word of mouth? I guess word of mouth. Uh, for example, Kenny Rogers was uh, in Charlotte playing at Carowinds at what they called the Palladium. That would have been uh, probably the late 70s. It was back during his gambler days, uh, that movie. Uh, and I stayed at the Holiday Inn when I would fish Lake Wiley because you could back up to the outside rooms and charge your battery on your boat. And I became friends with the manager there. Uh, and when Kenny was in town at 
Carowinds. He was staying in a suite at the Holiday Inn, and he had asked the manager, I think, he'd like to talk to meet some local bass fishermen, and we got introduced. Uh, Ray Scott opened so many doors for me. That was the founder of Bass and founder of the Whitetail Institute. Uh, I can't I can't begin to tell you the people he exposed me to, which included sitting presidents, uh, uh, federal judges, just outdoor celebrities. Uh, I'll never forget sitting in a, a restaurant with him in New Orleans, and, and, and Bo Jackson came up to him and said, Mr. Scott, can I have your autograph? I <laughs> uh, was in a, a little cabin uh, uh, in a restaurant uh, adjacent to a little cabin in Canada, and uh, Bobby Knight, the basketball coach, came up to him and said, Mr. Scott, can I have your autograph? Uh, he went backstage with me when we had a fundraising party. Uh, I wanted to introduce him to Travis Tritt, and he stuck his hand out to Travis, and he said, Travis, I'm Ray. He said, I know who you are, Mr. Scott. I'm from South Georgia, and I'm a bass fisherman. So Ray opened all kinds of doors uh, uh, in, in over many, many different ways in many, many years. Now, have you ever had a bad day fishing or, I mean, I know you've had some adventures with various things, but have you ever had a bad day with any of that, that you that you rethought, do I want to do this? Well, you know, I've been in a, uh, a boat wreck, which was pretty serious, uh, a plane crash, which wasn't really serious, but we survived it okay. Could have been serious. Uh, and there's been events, that, that the Marlin, we, we, we rode three thunderstorms and all night long in reverse and water splashing over the transom of the boat. And my wife and two brothers were, were my soon-to-be wife. She was my fiance at the time. It was her first fishing trip with me. Uh, and I thought she would never go back because the water was just a, just a flying over the back of the boat. And, and everybody was sick. Uh, uh, I was not sick, but, but the, the wife and two brothers were. But, you know, all the bad in that night went away after the results. Because you, you knew what, what you were going for. You knew what the final result could be. I mean, you might lose it, but in all likelihood, if you're going to work that hard, you're going to make sure you pull it in, right? Well, at, at the time, uh, and I believe that was 1982, at the time, that, that marlin would have weighed probably 850 pounds live. But by the time we got it in, it was bled out and dehydrated, and it weighed 780 anyway. And at the time, that was the second or third largest Marlin that had been taken on the Atlantic coast. Uh, and at the time when we were fighting it, we didn't know if it weighed 800 pounds or if it weighed 1,100 pounds. And had it weighed 1,100 pounds, it would have been the largest Marlin. And when you've got something out there and you've only seen it jump twice, and it looks like a, a, a Volkswagen minibus when it comes up out of the water, it, it keeps your adrenaline going. For what'd you say, fifteen hours? Fifteen hours and ten minutes. Wow! You know, that... we we started the fight fifty miles offshore. We chased the fish in reverse for let's see, sixty miles actually. We chased the fish in reverse. We were one hundred and ten miles offshore. Sam Stokes said when we finally got the fish in the boat. Mm. Now, as I remember, there's also um, some cuisine talk in the book as well, right? Well, you know, outdoor cooking is is something that. I've always enjoyed. Uh, I learned to cook at a very young age for survival reasons. When I was 10, I had three younger siblings, and my mother was bedridden for a year uh, with inoperable back surgery. They finally found someone that would operate on her a year later. And I learned to cook for my siblings and and myself if I wanted to eat. Uh, And that cooking went to outdoors. I mean, when I was 11 and 12, we would... 
find bird eggs and bird nests and fry them over the campfire. And uh, it just, it, one thing led to another. But the adventures I had with Ray Scott led to the majority of that outdoor cooking. Uh, a lot of people thought that he and I shared the desire to hunt and fish, and we did. But that wasn't what bonded us the way we bonded. It was the sense of adventure, exploring old Indian caves in Mexico, uh, uh, going to flea markets, going to old Indian villages, excuse me, Mexican villages, and looking for their trash, which was our treasure, uh, old bowls, that sort of thing. But cooking was a real passion that we shared over an open fire and also in an outdoor kitchen that we had. So, yes, in fact, I've begun a second book that is actually about a how-to for outdoor cooking. Now, is that going to include recipes and everything? It will include recipes, how-to. It will be, it'll have some uh, griddle cooking. I do not use a grill. When you use a grill, you drop your flavor through the grates and, and you dry it out. I use a griddle. I use Dutch ovens, and I do some open fire roasting and, and also some in-ground stuff. Mm. Now, you were talking about um, um, some of the places, you know, other people's trash is your treasure and, and you're discovering that. There's a lot of uh, opportunity that you've had to see the world, really. Yes, I have. And, and I think the greatest satisfaction that I, I get out of that is, is realizing that it helped my children understand that we have such a good life here in the United States of America. Uh, they got to see how uh, the villagers live in, 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 in Africa. and I mean, it's not that they're abused or anything, but they're just poor. They're just dirt poor, and they, they don't have the access to medical care like we do. They don't have—they appreciate food. Uh, we went over there as hunters, and, and that's the only time they get meat, uh, fresh meat, is when there's the hunters on the ranch. Uh, so uh, th- those adventures were, were special uh, for my kids to be able to learn uh, that everybody didn't have it as good as we do in the United States of America. Now, you're mentioning a second book. Is is that you're on your bucket list, or is there something else there, too, something you haven't done that you want to do? The second book, th- this, this book was Long Guns and Great Fishing Runs. That was designed primarily to preserve history. Uh, for both my family and my friends, and, and actually some some fishing history as well. I was on the ground floor of this bass movement, and and you know I was uh, there's only three people living that fished the first tournament that I fished in 1968, and that's Bill Dance and Jimmy Houston and myself. Uh, so that was done for historic reasons, pass it on down to the family reasons, without any real goal of of achieving any necessary plateaus with that book. But with the cooking book, I think there are, is a number of people out there that would like to learn to cook outdoors that don't know how. And I'm going to cram in almost 70 years of experience, not only in recipes, but I'm going to cross over uh, domestic protein as well as wild protein. Most of my recipes you can use wild game or something you buy in a grocery store. And like I said, there'll be a lot of different uh, prep techniques, uh, and it'll be a how-to book filled with photographs. But I think that book may be more for a, a retail sale type book. Okay, and that's not necessarily saying that you have to, pardon me for putting it away, kill it before you grill it. I mean, you you don't have to do that 
you don't have to be a hunter to be able to utilize these recipes. You can use wall shrimp you catch yourself, or you can go to, to Harris Teeter and pick up the shrimp. You can use beef, or you can use uh, uh, elk uh, roast. Uh, uh, all the recipes will be interchangeable. Now, the books, this book has been out for a while. How's, how's it going with um, reception of it? What, what kind of reception have you received from it? Well, Richard, I've, you know, I've, I've sold some books. I think y'all sold some books. We I, have. I'm not a, uh, uh, I'm not a uh, 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 knowledgeable person when it comes to that. Uh, I just set up uh, last week uh, uh, the first uh, dealer uh, that uh, outdoor supply in Hickory, Charlie Mogray. He's carrying the book now. He has it for sale. Of course, you can buy it. RedHawkPublications.com. If Robert were here, he'd want me to say RedHawkPublications.com. RedHawkPublications.com. Or if you want to go pick one up, uh, you can pick it up at Outdoor Supply in North Hickory. I also will be doing uh, some promotions with Charlie and Outdoor Supply down the road when he lets me know when he wants to do it. And um, how do, what, what's your sense of the health of both fishing and hunting these days? Is it is it a growing sport? How, how does it look out there? You know, that's that's kind of a double-edged sword, but I will say this. I witnessed the restoration of the wild turkey in western North Carolina. I saw it. I was there when the first seven successfully were released. There had been some released in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. But in 1962, I saw the first Well, actually, there were eight. Seven survived. My grandfather was very instrumental in that, and now we have a wild turkey population that was extinct in 1900 that is at record numbers. The White Hill deer are at record numbers. They were almost extinct. I was part of a group that reintroduced elk to western North Carolina. I helped Richard Childress and some other folks do that about 20 years ago. They have a healthy herd now. Bass fishing was seriously on its decline until Ray Scott came along, and Ray promoted a program called Don't Kill Your Catch. The first tournaments we fished, we kept everything. We didn't know any better. We kept everything, and he gave away uh, the, the fish to orphanages after by the boatloads full of them. But in 1970, he came up with Don't Kill Your Catch. If you brought in a fish that was dead, uh, you were penalized for it. You had to keep it alive. So that led to uh, aerated live wells and releasing 98% of the fish at the end of the tournament. So, you know, and, and, and I think that saltwater has taken a beating, but I believe that catching release is being promoted. And Ray started catching release before it was cool. Uh, and, and I think other species and other sportsmen are catching on to that. And for that reason, I think that, I think that our, the future of the game and the fish is brought with one exception, and that is we are developing this country. We're losing their habitat. So I think it's very critical, and, and thank goodness we have some forefathers that had sense enough to put back the national forest and the parks and that sort of thing. So overall, yes, I think things are on the upswing. Okay. Your, but your career has been pretty much a uh, – you, you've seen it go from – Killing everything you you catch to that whole catch and release uh, idea. I mean, over the stretch of it. Well, I was you know guilty of keeping all the fish. You'll see in the book. There's lots of pictures in the '60s and even early '70s of bring them in, put them on a stringer, pose for a photograph, shoot the deer. Uh, 
once I matured, I know Sharon one time said, if you don't shoot something, I'm not going to believe you're going hunting because I would go sometimes three or four years without pulling the trigger because I had set my standards higher each year. And I think more and more people have adapted that. that just, just don't shoot everything that moves. Just be selective. And when we do shoot it, I've had one rule, and it started with my grandmother when I was four years old. If you shoot it, you don't waste it. You either eat it or you give it to somebody that needs it. So uh, I believe in that as well. I don't believe in, in – of course, I don't hunt anymore. I gave that up. I just go in the woods with my kids and grandkids. But uh, I've always believed and was always taught that if you harvest an animal, make sure it goes to good use. Does that include taxidermy? Uh, I'm sorry, ask that again. Does that include having them stuffed and you know you as uh, you know putting up on the wall and that sort of thing? Well, the only thing when you uh, uh, go to a taxidermist that is still real, or for example, a white-tailed deer, is the the skin and the antlers. Everything else is a fiberglass mold. Uh, same with a bear. The only thing with a bear, there's a bear on the back of my book cover, I believe it is, uh, that was estimated at, at about 1,900 pounds. And his skull and hide weighed 205 pounds, I know, because I had to pack it out on my back, and we weighed it later. Uh, so when you harvest something, you use the meat, but then you can still go to the taxidermist and just as long as you've got the hide and the horns. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to um, sit down. And um, you see, so you don't really hunt anymore. No, I'll, I'll give just a tease as to what happened. Uh we were on an African safari. Uh, we had hunted for this pride of lions for 19 days and nights. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. We found them. My wife and two daughters, LJ and Emily and Sharon, were on the back of the truck with two of the trackers. And we found the lions. We got out. The professional hunter, we walked through the pride of lions. We had lions everywhere. I mean, it was really an eerie-feeling situation. But there was the big mill ahead, probably 40 yards. He put up the shooting sticks, and I put my rifle on the shooting sticks. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw two tiny cubs, just weeks old. And I knew from my experience that if I shot the male, that those two cubs were doomed because the next male would kill them. So I took the safety off, handed the gun to the tracker in the back of the truck. The professional hunter was not happy with me at all. I said to my wife and daughters, catch and release at its finest. I said, let's go home. And I don't know, but something came over me that day. And to this day, I, now if I get hungry, I will go in the woods and harvest something. But so far, I haven't had to do that. Mm. What about fishing? What do, you, do you do much fishing these days? Not a lot. Uh, I fish up on Lake James some. You know, we did, we, we made 105 trips to Mexico. We had a house down there called La Casa de los Cinco Amigos. And we had some mighty fine trips and caught lots of fish, had lots of fun. Uh, and it's kind of hard to get excited to fish local lakes around here after being in a paradise like that. Mm. But I go some. I take the, uh, I go with my son and granddaughters uh, to opening youth day for trout fishing the first Saturday in, in, in uh, June each year. And trout fish a little bit and bass fish a little bit on Lake James, but it's not... It's, we were sitting on a porch one time in Mexico, and the sun had come up, and it was shining on the mountains with, at the base of an 8,000-foot mountain. And uh, it was about 9 o'clock, and uh, I was with Forrestwood and Ray Scott, and 
Farr said, I can't believe the sun's up and we're sitting up here instead of down there on the water. And Ray said, I don't think we're as mad at them as we used to be. <laughs> I've kind of adopted that theory, too. I, I, could, I, I see what you're saying, yeah. Well, uh, Rodney Honeycutt, thank you f- so much for doing the book, number one, to, to preserve all that, but uh, also um, for all you've done in, in terms of uh, conservation and uh, kind of creating a, a, our helping our understanding, helping my understanding of what it means to be a, a hunter and a fisherman and all those things. Well, I'll, I would say thank you as well. I've, I've enjoyed it, but I'll, I'll close with one statement. If it were not for hunters and fishermen, Wildlife and fishing would not be what it is today. Hunters and fishermen, through their investments, allow the species to be managed. And that's a necessity. Absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you for being on Red Pub Pod. I only have one more thing to ask. Can you can you say the name of the show? Red Pub Pod? Red Pod? Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. I get it. That got it. That got it very good. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for being with us. And thank, thank you. you for your work with Red Hawk Publications. We look forward to the next one. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. A podcast. Red Pub Pod. From Red Hawk Publications. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. I get it.